You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Trade This Week. I am Pete Mento, and that is not a younger, hairier version of Doug that you see next to me. This is two weeks in a row that Keenan Bra is with us. Keenan, are you trying to take someone's job? I'm gunning, throwing, throwing yeah. elbows, you know, just uh, boxing out and getting the, the limelight any way I can. Hello, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, man. <laughs> Honestly, you know, I mean, whatever you got to do to get yourself on prime time. I That's understand. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, you guys did a pretty good job last week. Uh, Thank you. You know, I had a little dig on LinkedIn that I heard about, of course, from all of your fans. Keenan, you have fans. Yes. You have fans. <laughs> you have people who love it when you're on the show. Don't let it get to your head. But of course. Uh, for those of you who don't notice how loud it is where I am, I am at a Panera um, in beautiful Bedford, New Hampshire. Uh, sources tell us that the Wi-Fi at Pete's apartment was terrible. So we're recording here today. Um, and Doug is on assignment doing some pretty cool family stuff. So I'll let him talk. We'll let him talk about that. Yeah, we'll get the recap next week. All right, Keenan. Um, but at least it I sounds open, like... So you get to do... Or she sounds like what? I was just going to say, at least it sounds like you have pretty good internet quality, even if it's a little loud back there. You know what? Buy yourself a bowl of soup and some Diet Pepsi. You can hang out here for hours. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so well, why don't you go I'll, ahead and kick us off, Keenan? Kick us off here. Uh, last week... Tesla broke ground on a new Texas lithium refinery. And so according to the company, this is going to be the major um, choke point of the global EV production industry for a while now, um, as more competitors are coming online for Tesla. They're all kind of demanding the same sort of lithium resources. As I was preparing for this topic, too, I saw that um, per ton of lithium um, grade, like battery grade lithium uh, material, over the pandemic, it's skyrocketed from about $10,000 per ton to about 90000 per wow. ton, and then has come back down, but it's still um, 150% above where it was before the pandemic. And then so as we're seeing more and more cars and Tesla's growing, other companies are growing, they're all going to be kind of demanding that same infrastructure and a lot of it so far has been um very much uh, based in china and so this will be kind of a big deal u.s design u.s company u.s location to refine ore that came from the ground or salt brine and turn that into refined battery grade material so uh, pretty pretty big i guess they're going to be trying to build a million electric vehicles by 2025 and this facility will make enough material to make those batteries yeah, this is, uh, this is a big deal. So whenever you look at uh, any kind of important innovative manufacturing, you'll begin to notice when they become financially stable that they will seek as much integrated supply chain as possible. So wherever they're able to manage the production of their own raw materials, sourcing of their own raw materials, and innovation of their own raw materials, these producers are going to try to do it. And, I mean, Tesla, it's Tesla. I mean, none of us should be surprised that they're going to do everything they can to get their arms around their own supply chain, uh, whether that's, you know, leading with rare minerals, um, flat screens, any other innovation, and try to keep that within the U.S. 
because I think they themselves, you know, would tell you that they do want to globalize the product, but they also don't want to see it getting in the hands of people who want to steal it. So it was nice to see that it was coming in the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, was happy to hear that news and we'll be excited to see um, how they develop it. You didn't happen to see what, what part of Texas it was in. Like Corpus Christi. Oh. Yep. Corpus Christi. That's the first time I ever saw the ocean. Oh, really? When I was a little boy. My parents took me to Corpus Christi. Scared the hell out of me. Uh, right. Well, it's um, it's time for me to go to my first topic, which is it's, it's time. I hope you've got your salt with that because you got to take this one with you. Great salt. All right. All right. Uh, reports coming out this week of a loosely planned meeting between China's top diplomat and one of our most important White House uh, White House advisor Andrew Sullivan, where they sat down and they talked about a lot of things. Um, I don't know how many weeks it's been since the balloon. I probably should have Googled that. But, it, you know, it's like one of those things where your buddy comes over and throws up on your couch and you get into a huge argument. It's like, it's been a couple of months. Yeah, come on over. Let's have a beer. <laughs> so we, we had this big meeting. A lot of things were discussed, not the least of which was uh, trade. And when it came to trade, big portion of that was what are we going to do with regards to electric vehicles? What are we going to do with regards to the current um, trade war that we're, we're undergoing right now? What can be done between these two, if you want to call them administrations, to try to bring peace, some sort of sizable peace? And when can we have a real conversation? So if you if you go to anything about diplomacy, you know that these are the talks that happened before the talks that happened before the talks. So this was more of a call to sit down, not call meeting, to sit down and talk about publicly when they're going to have a bigger meeting between the principals. Now, who knows what happened, uh, you know, in the room where it happens? Who knows what happened behind closed doors, in coffee lines, sitting in a bar? You know, who knows what happened? And that's where a lot of diplomacy does happen. But this is a great step forward now. At the same time, there was apparently a lot of um, chitter-chatter about China's support of Russia and their current conflict in Ukraine and our displeasure for it. Again, I'm going to give you another metaphor, Keenan. It's like your buddy who's in a relationship with somebody you just don't like them. You know they don't like them, but you don't care. And that, that's kind of where we're at here. I mean, China's going to, I, I, w I would love to have um, a dime for every time I've said this on the show. You know, China's going to do whatever China wants to do. Like China's, China's always got their own best interest in mind. And those best interests usually revolve around the progression of their economy um, and the continued progression of their economy to that next state. So that has a lot to do with us. has a lot to do with the West. But there's also a lot to be said for a continued positive financial relationship and energy relationship with Russia. So we can complain all we want. China's going to do what China's going to do. First reaction on this is it's amazing how fast our news cycle is going, where I had almost forgotten about the Chinese spy balloon. That was such a big deal, and it wasn't all that long ago. But you reminded me, and uh, yeah. Um, it's been interesting lately with China, you know, I've been hearing a lot and uh, maybe you've been seeing some of this. They're doing military practices and flights getting closer and closer to Taiwan. You know, you mentioned the trade, uh, the um, trade war, but the Chips Act type stuff going on there. Um, Doug and I last week were talking where 
we don't think it's necessarily in China or America's interest to try to escalate. So we want to come up with some sort of deal. But I agree with you. China's going to be acting as a rational economic agent where they're probably still going to want to be doing trade stuff in Africa, trade stuff with Russia. And maybe they'll use that as a, a different chip or negotiating stuff. But they want to work with the U.S., but they don't want to give the U.S. everything that the U.S. wants. There needs to be that kind of a uh, little bit of negotiation room going on so interesting also the pre-talk before the pre-talk before the pre-talk just kind of gauging and setting the frame and what might be on the agenda to be included in the agenda interesting times it's madness you know, i gave three speeches in three days last week new york you know i went dallas new york and fort lauderdale right so this is miserable um great speeches on great crowds and the one in new york I, I said close to the end you know we need to we need to stop talking about China like they're the little kid in the room when we're talking about them. It's like, here's what's best for Keenan, right? Keenan's like, I'm right here. I'm right here and I'm 30, right? Like, I, I, I don't want to eat broccoli. Yeah, Just I don't kidding. want to eat broccoli. Broccoli is delicious. Broccoli is delicious. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, this, it's this sort of attitude that we've had at the West of you just settle down now and we'll take care of it all. China's like, shut up. You know, I mean, and... I can understand that. So I think what we need to do as trade professionals in particular and supply chain professionals, many of whom have spent a lot of time in China, is remember that we're not in a position to dictate to any sovereign government how to manage their economy. And we should respect the fact that we're not in a position, nor should we, yep. to dictate the economy of any sovereign that's a great point. Yeah, if we tried to go in with that sort of mentality, even if we got a deal, which probably wouldn't happen, it wouldn't last in the long term. You kind of have to treat uh, economic partners, blocks, countries with some sovereignty and respect and kind of have a foundation going from there, ideally. Yeah, completely. All right, Keenan. Well, that brings us to halftime brought to you by your employer, yes. Cap Logistics. Um, to learn more about Cap Logistics, please do visit them at caplogistics.com. They are a fantastic supporter of Doug and I and our endless ramblings. And from time to time, Keenan's a cogent, um, a very, very time sensitive and punctuated, non rambling points. And uh, we do appreciate them and their continued support. I, I don't even know how, how long it's been at this point, but it's been years that they've been supporting us. So thank you so much to the folks at Capital Justice. All right, Keenan, you want to go first for halftime? Yeah, let's kick this off. Uh, don't know how cogent or not, but it definitely is a topic I could ramble on for a while about. So mm -hmm. today talking about AI for the halftime and specifically the CEO of OpenAI of ChatGPT fame. Sam Altman will be testifying before Congress this week. And so could be a big discussion and we could take it any parts that seem uh, most interesting and relevant. But this is all within a backdrop of lots of amazing um, steps in what AI is, especially with these large language models, the base and then the training on top of them, what they can do. You know, we've seen from GPT 3.5 to GPT 4 went from the 10th percentile of passing the U.S. bar exam to the 90th percentile. Right. So not only, you know, um, automated jobs in the past of, you know, blue collar type things. Uh, this is actually going towards highly paid professionals um, and what that could all do. So there's backdrop of uh, security concerns. People like Elon Musk 
who had been involved with initial money for OpenAI, as well as many others. A high-level person from Google recently stepped down, citing concerns and safety, and there probably is very legitimate safety things, whether Skynet or a military arms race type things. But there's also been some interesting discussions I've been hearing where some people are thinking that Sam Altman and OpenAI may be kind of like the last competitor to like be a startup getting in, where now the big boys, the Apples, the Microsofts, the IBMs, the Googles, they're going to want to use this uh, cozy relationship with DC to set up a very favorable regulatory regime to prevent new upstarts from getting in, maybe enough where they could acquire them, but no one to really challenge their position. Um, and that's also coming as a backdrop. There was, I think, like an internal leak, uh, something people have been reporting on, so I'm not breaking news here, but a senior, senior Google engineer has been claiming in internal discussions about how their company's AI lacks the secret sauce, where it's not super defensible at this point, which is why they hadn't released Bard and everything until ChatGPT kind of came out with some competition and they had to keep up because otherwise people might be going to Bing if Bing's got ChatGPT. I don't know if you've played with it yet, but Google's brand new Bard is pretty cool. Bard is awesome. It's able to do Google searches, uh, more up-to-date information than the GPT train stuff. And so... They're competing, but I'm imagining there's also, like, is it all just about the safety? We'll probably see that in the headlines, but there's probably also, can we make some sort of regulatory moat where we don't have a technological moat right now? Yep. Well, well Keenan, you know I love Elon Musk, and I'm a nerd, I'm, ner I'm a nerd for the Musk. Um, don't own a Tesla, don't know if I ever will, but I'm a nerd for the Musk. And he came out just railing about, you know, AI and um, really upset about it. Something's got to be done about it. And then he started recently just like called up Lex Friedman and said, here's a, sh a crap pile of money. Go, go, you know, take what we've already got, take it to the next level. It's like, which one is it, bro? Like, are, are you worried about the world falling apart because of AI? Or is this really an opportunity? And I think that's what's got me so concerned, Keenan, is up until now, AI, machine learning, and even to a degree, quantum computing, was either a government-backed idea or concept, scientifically-backed idea or concept. It was not a profit-driven idea. And now all these people, like Musk, like Bezos, who handed over to the folks at ChatGPT just barrels of money, and were told this is not going to be a profit-generating enterprise. Well, now it is. And they, they have no ownership in it, and they feel a little bit duped. So I'm, I'm wondering how much of this is, yes, we're worried about Skynet, and the rise of the machines and how much is it you know i'm more concerned about the fact that i didn't get mine on the way up so i i'm, I'm fascinated by all of that but then there's the other part of me that's very pragmatic that has been paying it i spoke last week to all these law enforcement people when i was in texas i said how much you about quantum computing and just blank spaces you know it's just not something they focus on mm -hmm. and i said you know ibm's apparently at Osprey now. They were at Eagle, now the new processor's Osprey. Then after Osprey, it's Condor. And then by the time that they get to Condor, they're gonna hit Q-Day, which means that they'll just shred RSS. They, just, they will shred 120-bit encryption. That's the day where they're at a million qubits. And then from there, they go to Flamingo, which is the next, you know, the next chip. And Flamingo will be able to work, like you can put them in, in series, like we do with chips now. Oh and boy. If you add AI to that, you know, AI right now, it's, it's, it's just, it's just going through the internet and it's like taking screenshots of crap 
and then cutting and pasting stuff something for you. I mean, great. It, it's incredibly useful. Don't get me wrong. But what happens when we allow it to do? Mm-hmm. Not just to say, but to do. And Be an agent. It. It's True. already it's already starting, so it's not quite where I think you're thinking a few years in the future, but already people are spinning up auto GPTs where you tell it like the end ultimate task. I want an app that rates tequila or whatever it is. And then it's on the cloud and it has these connections. They're making all sorts of different add-ons and things. But the auto part allows it to come up with prompts to then prompt itself to do things. You give it a credit card, you give it access to servers, it'll spin up and do stuff. It'll implement code. It's not perfect yet, but we're getting closer and closer to that point where what if it starts making a bunch of money? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and now let's see the other side of this king is where is chat GPT? Where's AI? Let's stop calling it chat GPT. Where's, sure. where's modern AI going to end up being used the most? Government, military end uses supply Absolutely. chain in a massive way to yes. any, any type of optimization that you're talking about. It's going to be used in conjunction with artificial intelligence and quantum computing with virtual reality for experimentation, researching, engineering. It's also going to be used in finance. It's going to be used Absolutely. in finance, stock trades, and, and high banking. And that's probably where it's going to get used first because that's where it can make the most money. Yep. So... so with that, I've I've been seeing fintech and like, you know, being into econ, you know, you're always aware of, oh, you could become an actuary, work for the insurance companies. Um, I was surprised to see a recent uh, study come out about AI readiness and number one industry implementing and researching and investing in AI is insurance. But number two is logistics and supply chain, even ahead of number three financial services outside of insurance. So AI is impacting logistics now, investments are being made and we'll probably be seeing more of it in the future. Um, so, you know, the, the, best, the best way I can explain this to people is when they ask me why supply chain and AI, and I say, if you talk to anyone that is uh, an academic about artificial intelligence and machine learning. They'll say to you that it works best now and will for the near term future on fixing a puzzle, problem solving, taking a bunch of disparate issues and making them all connect. What does that sound like? It sounds like our industry. Mm -hmm. So I think it is going to be used to optimize from purchaser through payment, all of the, all the inputs that go along with it. And I think someone's going to make a lot of money doing it. Unfortunately, it's also going to mean the continued digitization and automation of logistics space, which is it's just evolution, unfortunately. Absolutely. It'll be interesting, interesting space to watch. That's for sure. Well, my halftime is much lighter. Okay. Um, I've talked about this before. I am a sneaker head. I think that's what the kids call them going all the way back to 1984 when I begged my parents to uh, buy me some Jordan 1s and they wouldn't. Um, and I had to save up money to buy my own pair, which I never wore. Because um, I just, I didn't didn't want to get them screwed up. And Day I won. They, it would have yeah, happened. Been you know? <laughs> and I'm not a basketball player. My vertical leap is like a quarter of an inch. It's pathetic. Uh, for me, it was all about hip hop. So... Adidas and, and Nike were a big deal to me. And, and I love the way that Jordan ones look. And I love the way that, you know, every, the mid, all of them, all the way through Jordan. On top of that, <coughs> maybe his oldest, our oldest, is really into it. He's, he's done an excellent job of buying things off of apps, buying things when they first drop, making money off of it, which unfortunately has turned me into that person too. So I was excited 
recently when I saw that there was a movie coming out with Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon called Air. It was in theaters for a short amount of time, but it's currently on Prime and it's killing it. Hmm. Everybody's watching it. And the story is quite simple. It is a dramatization of Nike's work and the complexity and how hard it was to convince um, the fifth, I think he was the fifth round pick, or third, fifth round pick, I think, in the NBA draft that year, Michael Jordan, to come to Nike. And um, it's a fascinating story. If half of it's true, it's great. Um, you know, the end result is is that Michael Jordan, the, the best estimate right now is that direct payments from Nike, he makes about a quarter of a billion dollars a year. Um, he was the first he was the first professional athlete with American sneaker companies to negotiate a percentage of the sale of every piece of clothing. So, so is that how it works? How percentage it works. of sales. So up until then, you got your quarter of a million, you got your hundred thousand dollars, and that was it. Michael Jordan's mother said if, if he's going to go out there and sell these, he wants the people who are buying it to know that money's going to Mike. Hmm. And Mother wanted to go best. Smart yeah, mama, mama did know best. <laughs> um, he wanted to go to Adidas because just like me in 1984, 85, he was really into Run DMC and hip hop and that whole culture. And we wore Adidas sweatsuits. We wore Adidas shell toes. We lived in Adidas. Um, but the long story short of why I brought this up is the it, most of the movie is not necessarily you know, congruent with the facts. So if you if you look it up, the guy that apparently convinced Michael to come was fired uh, about a couple of years later. He didn't last very long with the company. He and Phil Knight got into it, and he was out. They don't mention that in the film. Um, mm -hmm. Michael Jordan to this day says he doesn't really know that guy. Although in the movie they make it, he said a mover and shaker. Um, and then they. They make another point, which only take a second to Google in passive income. So including his 250 a year, Michael Jordan makes around $400 million a year. Wow. Between it being used in commercials, it being used in movies, it being used in whatever. Every year, the 250 million he makes is more than he made in his entire basketball career. Wow. And when you start to bring in the passive income, he is, with the exception of one racehorse, the highest paid athlete in the history of sport. And Wait, there's a racehorse? <laughs> yes, yes. Race I mean, there's a lot of money in the racehorsing, but that's, after, I've never heard him compared before. After the racehorse is done racing, of course, it's, uh, it's genetic material. Right. Yeah. Is, yep. uh, is incredibly <laughs> valuable. So if you look up, like, I think it's Stormcat or Stormcat is the number one. It's made billions for its own. Wow. Um, and now the problem with all that is, of course, we're talking about genetically modifying horses and that'd be important. Anyway, my point is, it, it was an incredible story. It's a fascinating conversation about negotiation. You're what you negotiate. And sometimes yes. it takes one person believing in you to make that negotiation well. The second thing I really wanted to bring up about this movie was dig a little deeper because what's being told to you in this biopic is not necessarily um, you know the way the story works. A hundred percent reality. Yeah. Well, it still sounds very interesting. Uh, fascinating. And then I'm also interested in okay, where does it diverge? What actually happened? Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Thanks for the recommendation. Check out Air on Amazon Prime. It is streaming free. 
Um, All right. Everybody wants to dig it. All right, Keenan, what's your next topic, buddy? Very nice. Uh, next topic is uh, bringing it back from technology to a little bit more uh, logistics and supply chain, a little bit of forecasting. Um, the topic is flatbed demand remaining strong despite housing pullback. So the last couple of years, a lot of flatbed demand has been coming from housing construction when there just wasn't enough. I mean, I'm here in Denver, but all throughout the country, there's been quite a bit of that. Now, there is a... Um, a bigger than expected slowdown in housing. However, that's not been impacting the US and US-Mexico flatbed market so much because it's being replaced by an increase in construction for warehouses, large warehouses along interstate corridors, as well as factories. Kind of tying back into the Tesla situation, they're not the only ones building some very large factories here in the US and also Mexico. Kind of a piece of the story too is that the demand is staying strong in the US as well as a lot of flatbed going back and forth between US and Mexico. Kind of in what uh, Doug and I were talking last week and you guys have been talking generally where there's a little bit of reshifting of supply chains, you know, things that were made just in China. Now we're China, a Chinese company in Vietnam, and maybe a Chinese or a non-Chinese company in Mexico, um, kind of like where my Toyota Tacoma was built, Japanese company built in Mexico. There's more of those industrial parks being built on the U.S. and Mexico side. And so despite the housing pullback, there's a fair amount of demands for these flatbed assets. And I know we have a lot of customers that need and rely on flatbeds. So it's just one of those things that people should be aware of, shippers should be aware of, and uh, try to plan your large projects out ahead of time. Well, that, that's the important term right there, Keenan, large projects. So typically, typically in difficult economies, so whether it's an economic slowdown or a recession or a depression, you name it, companies are going to invest in infrastructure. People are going to start to build it. It's funny. Most of the major airports and ports were built in really crappy economies. You know, you have bridges built. You'll have bus terminals. Well, why? It's because money's cheap. And there's lots of labor, and generally things are cheap, and folks just want to keep people working. It's from a regulatory perspective, it's easier to get things going. So you build in economically complicated times, and then you ramp up the use of them in economically uncomplicated times. Right now, money's not cheap. You know, um, it's actually very expensive to get a hold of uh, of a credit instrument if you're a corporation. So you say to yourself, well, if that's the case, what's going on with flatbeds? It's like you said. People are moving production all over the place. They're not necessarily getting engaged in large infrastructure. They're they're moving energy. They're moving stuff from place to place. They're building warehouses. Regardless of the fact that money costs so much, they're still taking the opportunity to build in what is a difficult and complex economy because they know eventually it will come back. And they want to have the infrastructure. They want to have the assets in order to take advantage of it. So yeah, man, it's one of the places where in the logistics industry right now, Although you have seen a lot of softening, we were so excited that like ocean rates were a couple of percent, right? Um, flatbed, no, flatbed has been a very strong market, particularly out of Mexico, as you said. Interesting stuff. And I, my story was mostly based on um, business and private demand, though there were some reports about a little bit of the government stuff going on, too. So you were describing building in hard times, reminding me of, you know, more uh, 
uh, Great Depression type, large infrastructure type building. So it seems like there may be some government infrastructure stuff going on. I'm not sure what specific projects, roads, energy type stuff is going on there. I was seeing a lot of private, but some of the infrastructure bill, which may be clean energy type stuff, could be a part of that too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, um, I get to close the show out this week and I get to do it with a, a real head scratcher. So I, I think we've talked about making a coin, haven't we, Keenan? We have. Yeah. So, you know, there was this one time where my daughter, um, who says a lot of dumb things, uh, said to me, Dad, if we owe all these other countries money, you know, why don't we just say to them, come and get it? I think we owe you money, come and take it from us. I mean, you could tell she's definitely the great granddaughter of a gangster, right? So it's, it's like, oh, you want your money? Come get it, right? Come get it. I said, okay, well, that's not how the world works. And she said, well, you complain all the time about inflation. We should stop printing all this money. Why don't, why don't we just print a bunch of money and pay our own bills with it? And I said, go to your room until you understand inflation. <laughs> right? We talked on the show before about this concept of minting a coin from platinum and saying it's a trillion dollar coin and just putting it in the bank and using it to then take that recovered currency of that liquidity and use that to pay down cost rather than continuing to raise the debt suit. And um, it's one of those things like talking about aliens or Bigfoot. You're like, yeah, okay, sure. Well, now you've got congressmen, you've got senators, you have people at the Fed talking about it. I mean, you had Janet Yellen chatting about it. And I thought, have I been microdosing mushrooms and not realizing it? What is going on here? People are serious. Keenan, are we really going to mint the coin? We might be. I am in the same boat as you where it was something that it was more of like a fun um, thought experiment. What would be the repercussions? How would this work? And slowly it's turned into like, well, we could maybe do this. Um, you know, it, it really depends on optics. That's one of these things I find fascinating about economics where it is a science and there is external reality going on that could be described by different models or math formulas. However, it's also a social thing. So whether or not we try it or whether or not it works has a lot to do in my mind about how strong of confidence you could rally behind why we're doing it, the benefits, how it's gonna go in the future. If it's done in a way where it undermines confidence, then you know, to your uh, daughter's point, you know, hey, come and get it. Yes, we do have a large military, but then you kind of like break trust and confidence and all these things. And then you don't have access to international investors money at the same low interest rate that we have been enjoying, which is important for us to continue. Otherwise, we might not be able to afford it. Um, and so it really depends on, you know, our, if the political side is so bad in Congress that they can't raise the debt ceiling, is he going to be able to muster the confidence? I don't know that Joe Biden can speak eloquently enough or muster that global confidence to do it, but they're talking about it more so realistically than I've ever heard in the past. I don't even know if it's legal, Keenan. It I, might not be. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know what the process Apparently, the Fed's just told to do it. So does the president just, you know, have an extra cup of coffee one day and say, you know, what the hell with it? Let's just... Let's just mint a coin. Screw it. You know, and you know, you're, you're talking about economics. You sit in your coursework as an undergrad and as a graduate student, and you hear the following phrase all the time: "Accept rationality in this equation. Accept that the players are all rational, the actors are all rational, 
and that any externalities to the income are rational. Nothing is rational about the world around us. If you've ever been in a relationship, ever been a parent, ever had employees, irrationality is all around us, you know? And then eventually you get to go work on a PhD and you're teaching classes. And you have to keep saying to people in these, these courses, we're, we're, we're assuming rationality here. Like, uh, and then you're turning them into little idiots, you know, in economics. You made a great point. We were talking about minting the coin and having it affected. We're not thinking about all of your rational things that people will begin to consider that. What if every other country in the world just starts doing that? Great point. What if everyone else is like, you know what? I make my own money too. So hmm. here's my Gnipkin ops from, you know, whatever country it is. And I just made a trillion of them. You're welcome. Right? But what's to stop the money? I don't know if anything is, but the fact that this has gone from, like you said, a thought experiment amongst dateless nerds to something <laughs> that Congress and Senate is talking about is fascinating. It is. So we may be hearing more of this because aren't we coming up on a, that conversation here pretty soon, like yep. June or out of the date? June 1st. June 1st. Yeah. We've only got a couple of weeks on, and they're freaking out because they're, you know, the, the right wingers are, are fired up to hold this thing hostage. So um, President Biden's terrible. Now, I realize that all conversations about economics are based on fantasy. So for me, I'm okay with all the irrationality because, you know, it's like my daughter running into my room and saying there's a monster under my bed. I know there's no monster because I know there aren't any monsters, just like how I know that the economy is all based on lies. See, you're going to get us taken off of YouTube. With these <laughs> but economics is basically, it's nothing but all of us agreeing on certain criteria, holding it sacred, and then not going over those lines. A dollar is worth a dollar, and I can use it to buy things. But if all of a sudden we all decide that blades of grass are currency or hugs, I can start buying, you know, my, my Diet Pepsi and my, my bowl of soup for hugs, if that's what mm -hmm. we decide. So, yeah, man, it's, um, it's madness. And I kind of hope that they do it just because I like to watch things burn. You know, I and I, have, and I have safety deposit boxes full of bars of silver and gold. So, you know, I'm waiting for crap like this to happen. So with that, um, yeah, my first question that always comes to my mind, is this good for Bitcoin? Perhaps it could be where there's an artificial limit on how, what it goes up, but then bring into your topic earlier. Eventually, some of these uh, quantum powered computers might be able to break the SHA-256 type stuff. So I don't know if Bitcoin's going to be around as long as gold will be around. Um, what happens with that, Keenan? Does that become the great <laughs> like, like Y2K of finance when we get really close to Q day and someone says, we have to rewrite the code of Bitcoin. Like, what do you do? Because you'll crash wallets like that. You'll yeah. I mean, in the past they have to do the, these kind of consensus things of, Hey, someone submitted this idea. People like it and get all the nodes to agree, but that does get trickier when there's a lot more money at stake. Like in the future, we're getting closer. Maybe some people want, the uh it not to work I, I don't know i don't know may not may not last as long as gold um but it, it could do well here in the short term um 
maybe at risk of going another a little bit long, something along the related of the trillion dollar coin that I was seeing people talk about recently is why don't we, the US, pull our gold out of Fort Knox, Treasury Fed deposits, and then redeposit it at a higher amount. Right. Supposedly, it's only valued at like $42 an ounce um, currently, but it's obviously like $2,000 an ounce. And so we could get a bunch that way. Um, wouldn't have any printing of through a coin, but maybe there's some other options. Um, or maybe they just don't want people looking at gold or realizing how the US dollars lost 98 plus percent of its value against gold. I don't know. Do all that math, man. Think about <laughs> how many people are going to just realize the Again, the ridiculous notion of how the global economy works, which is one. And then second of all, what that would mean for gold prices if the U.S. did that. I mean, you have a deflationary pressure on gold prices, which would be bad for banks, be bad for all kinds of people that are invested in it, which is bad for politicians who need that money in order to continue to run. So, you know, but it is an interesting idea, a very, very interesting idea that would probably be less impactful than making a coin out of thin air. You know, um, so I, I, I would be shocked by, I mean, you can get a, I just bought one this week, you get a 10 ounce bar of gold for like 290 bucks or 297 dollars, a silver, sorry, not gold, silver. Um, and you know, gold is at, what is it at right now? It's something ridiculous. It's, um, Roughly 2000. Let's look it up. Yeah. So, um, the different reason I bring this up is that silver mm -hmm. still is very volatile. Depends a lot on, on the global economy. Gold is is volatile, but it's not so volatile that it just dumps in value. It just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So having some as part of your portfolio is smart. And owning the physical gold, in my opinion, and not I don't I don't trust anybody. So um, you know, having physical gold in a, in a lock box in a bank that wants to steal is it's just smart. Um, yep. But this this would, if you were to do that, take the gold out and put it back in. Oh, oh my God. First of all, I would have to put together my own Ocean's Eleven key just to <laughs> try to steal. <laughs> Imagine that one trillion coin. Someone oh, stealing that one coin because you do have to deposit it in the treasury. So you know, it's going to be like because apparently it's worth real money for a time yeah you know yeah. possessions um, worth nine cents of the law but when there's only one item the provenance uh, might be under heavy scrutiny yeah. <laughs> yeah just a bunch of ex navy seals and a bunch of dudes from the side just rolling up and humvees just you know they want to steal that one coin it'd be the greatest movie ever why aren't we writing it keenan <laughs> You know? I would love to watch that. Absolutely. That'll, that'll be our Netflix <laughs> special that you and Doug and I write. Um, the treasury decides to make the one, $1 trillion coin and then we put together the greatest proof ever to steal it and hold it ransom. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. Uh, stay tuned. Coming to a theater near you or Netflix near you. The uh, coin. 2024. The coin. The coin. Uh, a, uh, <laughs> a cap logistics production. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it was great talking to you, Keenan, as always. You've got to take Absolutely. us out, buddy. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another edition of Global Trade this week. And I hope you all have learned something new, had some interesting thoughts and laughs, and have a great rest of your week. Thanks again, Pete. Really Thanks, enjoyed Keenan. it, as always. And oh, yeah. uh, have a good one yourself. You too, buddy. See you next week, Doug. Bye. Bye. Bye.